Welcome to a new episode of the Miss Education Podcast. Albert Kim here with my co-host Tommy Chang and Brian Lin. We have a special guest today going old school all the way back to Tommy Chang's college days. His college homie is super successful. We wanted to reach out to him doing some super interesting things. So let me kick it over to Tommy to introduce our guest. Yeah, I'm super excited to have Mike Sue here with us. Mike and I have known each other since freshman year in college in 1993. We went to Penn together. He is now the CEO and founder of Cooler. Cooler is a company that is starting up, trying to redefine the podcast experience. And he's done some pretty dope things through his career. He's launched Yellow, which is Snapchat's accelerator program. Mike also has been a chief product officer for Me Too. And Me Too is a multi-channel and social networks on Latin X media content. He's done a lot in his life. And also something that's really cool. He is a board member of Defy Ventures also. And mm-hmm. I'm a friend of the CEO of Defy. And Def- Defy is an organization that helps to support men who are currently incarcerated, right? Or court involved. Yeah, it's an entrepreneurship program that teaches current and formerly incarcerated individuals how to start their own businesses and you're a board member for that so thanks for coming man thanks for stopping by and having a conversation with us i'm excited to reconnect and yeah hang with y'all yeah he's also a diehard phillies fan philly supporter trust the process so you know we are he fulfill our quota for the year we got to get one of those I begrudgingly <laughs> but i know i know i'm on here in spite of that fact you're welcome krupa that, <laughs> are you a fan of all philly sports teams Mainly basketball and football. Okay, yeah. So you were a Sixer fan from childhood? Yeah, uh, I moved from Taiwan and halfway through 11th grade to okay. Philadelphia, so I adopted. But I always, like, even back in the day, I remember my uncle would record VHS tapes, and I saw Barkley, and oh, I was like, yeah, wow, man. that guy plays different mm. and with, like, a level of aggression I'd never seen. And so he was one of my favorites already, so moving to Philly was easy to take on the Sixers. Until I, I didn't realize the cost that would come with it of a lifetime of misery. Oh, yeah. But... <laughs> At the time, I readily embraced it. Yeah, how are you feeling right now about? Well, I mean, I was. I'm excited as of this recording. Harden so far. Yeah, he's, seems it. like yeah, he's yeah. playing ball. Yeah, oh, he's this irreconcilable I, differences. I was just telling irreconcilable somebody, differences. Being a Sixer fan is like being a fish in a stream, and you're like, oh look, food, and you go bite it, and a hook like yeah. just hooks through <laughs> you. A rusty hook goes right, right through your cheek, and you're like, oh damn, that hurt. Somebody takes a selfie, they throw you back in the water half dead, and you do it all over yeah. again. And you're like, oh, look, food. It's Charlie Brown and <laughs> no, yeah, like, football. Yeah, literally, yeah. Philly fans are like, he showed up to practice. They're like, oh, my God, it's there's progress. And I'm like, y'all are idiots. <laughs> y'all are idiots. This is why, yeah. These are why all sports fans are dumb. Yeah. Because, yeah, literally. Because like, we no, want to believe. That's why my wife just looks at me like, I didn't realize how low your IQ was when we married. <laughs> no, it's true. Just in this one area. Yeah. No, yeah. But it's extreme. The drop-off is, it's. Yeah catastrophic the drop off of what just intelligence regular everyday intelligence and emotional intelligence literally all modes of just adult that happens sometimes when we're sitting here just talking sports we get really dumb i tried to Mm -hmm. my sister's tried to have that conversation with me where she tries to rationally understand sports fandom yeah Yeah. because she's just not into it now she's like why do you care yeah and we just have and there's no way to rationally explain being a sports fan yeah so you share with us your journey. You mentioned that you went to school in Taiwan, but during your 11th grade, you came to Philly. What, I mean, what's your journey? Yeah, so I was born in the States, born in Minnesota. My dad worked for 3M. And back then, there wasn't even the Hmong population. Like, it was just mm. just like 
my dad and literally his coworker was Michael Chang's dad. So like we were like the only Asian people <laughs> like in all, all of serious? Minnesota. Yeah, circle yeah, back yeah. to Michael Chang and again. Oh this is like gosh. the way my dad is. Like he's the most Asian person because Michael Chang's dad was like, hey, you know, because my brother was the same age as Michael Chang. And his dad would be like, hey, you want your brother, uh, Jeff, my brother, hey, you know, Michael's doing these tennis lessons and you want him to join? And my dad's like, <laughs> he's like no Chinese person is ever going to make it to pro tennis. I don't, <laughs> know, why. Children tennis. I don't know why they're playing so much. He's like, they're winning. Oh no! That's hilarious. Your dad is like the origin. Is Michael Chang's villain origin story? Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. exactly. And like, fast forward when we moved back to Philly, I met with a high school guidance counselor, and he's like looking at my thing, and he's like, "Oh, you played club basketball? Yeah, you should try out for the team." And my dad's like, "No, no, no. He he plays for fun. Yeah, he, 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 he just plays for fun." I'm like, I'm like, "Dad, I'm sitting right here, bro." But anyway, so my dad came for grad school. Him and my mom, they were dating then, and they got married in the U.S. And then we moved to San Diego. He was still working for 3M. And then we moved back to Taiwan in second grade. That's when the tech scene was exploding in Taiwan. It's funny, though, because it wasn't until recently that I asked my dad again, like, what was sort of going on when you decided to move back? And he was like, when he came out of school, he was, like, kicking ass in, in mm. his work. And he kept like, you know, he had papers, he, the research he did that like showed up in the local papers and he increased the efficiency at all. He was an industrial engineer and all this, but he was like, I kept getting passed up for promotions. Mm. Mm. And he's like, I'd show up to these small towns to try to like, you know, improve efficiency on these things. And they'd look at me like, whoa, like I'd never seen an Asian person before. Mm. And then I remember in second, like around first grade or something, we went back to Taiwan and I didn't know this, but my dad, when he went back to Taiwan was like, Oh my God. Like there's this line from fresh off the boat when they get back to Taiwan and Candace is like, Oh my gosh, we're the white people of here. (laughs) Like that's what my dad felt like he landed back and he was like, yo, all of my friends are like moving up or staying in place only because of who they are, not because of the color of his skin. And he felt like consistently his ethnicity and his language barrier always held him back. No matter how well he did, they're like, I don't know if he's a leader i don't know mm. if he's a manager mm. and so he was like man screw this we're going <laughs> we're moving back to taiwan so i can just rise and fall on my own merits and so that's why we moved back to taiwan so from second grade to 11th grade we lived in taiwan in Xinzhou, and then in taipei and then my dad like wanted to be his own boss wanted to be an entrepreneur at the time my aunt she was actually one of the og pioneers of fusion cooking she started her restaurant in the 80s. She went to culinary school, learned French cooking techniques. Tommy knows this. She's won James Beard Awards. And she was like, yo, come here and you can open up a restaurant. And my dad was like, okay. <laughs> so we moved back halfway through my junior year uh, to Philly where he could open a restaurant. And I became free labor through high school and, uh, <laughs> of course. And, and college working at their restaurant. How did you feel about the decision to move back? Like, Were you excited? Were you sad? Were you like... It was tough for me because I was having so in Taiwan. Yeah. I've, I had a late growth spurt. So when I was in Taiwan, I was like 5'5 five, five, and I could walk into, we could go to nightclubs. We could go to like 7 Eleven and buy beer. So I was having a blast. And we were <laughs> with all our friends on the weekends, we would go to the beer houses and go out and do all this stuff. And to move to the US, it's suddenly giving up all of these good friends that I had made. Mm. And so it's a huge culture shock for me. Yeah. Cause that's a tough. It's tough time to move, like late yeah, high yeah. school, halfway right? through junior year. And you went to high school in Taipei. You went to Taipei American School. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That, that's a very different vibe yeah. than like a, a traditional high school. Than like yeah, an all yeah. Taiwanese. Yeah. School, and uh, right? 
Yeah. Well, uh, at that time, what was the Asian population like in Philly? I mean, in the suburbs, it was almost non-existent. Yeah. I remember my buddy Dave Chang. We had Bad Bob Kim. We had like a couple of guys, Asian dudes, and that was about it. Um, and it was predominantly white suburban. The city was different, obviously. Yeah. Um, but in the suburbs, it was super white. Did you know anything about Philly? Because like we make jokes about Philly now, but I'm curious. Like, did you know anything no, about Philly? I didn't know anything. Charles Barkley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. knew Charles Barkley. Most known. That's about it. Um, yeah. So moving back was was a trip to go. Especially not just everything changed, right? Like the racial dynamics changed. I was living in a Taipei, so that's like a metropolitan thing. And I moved. I remember going to Valley Forge. I'd never seen that much grass in my life. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I was like, yo, you know how many buildings we could put up here? Yeah. <laughs> and I see a squirrel and I'm like, oh, wildlife. Like, that's yeah. so cool. Uh, we see yeah, squirrel yeah. and deer and I'm like, oh, cool. Everybody else is like, oh, Lyme disease. Like, that's gross. Mm. <laughs> mm. You know, that is something, though, that I've heard multiple people mention that I think gets lost in the narrative is like, particularly Asian people, the idea that like when Asian people come to the States, we're coming from farmland, agriculture, yeah, like middle of nowhere to big cities and i was like nah a lot of times it's the opposite chinese people japanese people korean people a lot of other a asian cultures we're leaving the biggest cities in the world often mm -hmm. and coming to and you're like oh yeah this is not you know yeah i always think it's funny like the airports in asia are like nice crazy man. like you know like they're like they're destinations people yeah, go they're like, it's out. like star trek you know yeah. and then you come back and you go to jfk and you're like holy <laughs> crap like this is the financial capital of the world like yeah. <laughs> i expect a donkey to cross across here like carrying like goods and but everybody else is thought of you as like, oh my gosh, this guy came from rice paddies. That's right. Like, yeah. you know, third yeah. world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your high school is really diverse too, right? It was, I mean, there were Asian people, but there were white people there. I mean, there were my high school? Yeah, your high school. Yeah, yeah you're in, in Taiwan. Oh, in Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was yeah, about I was to say, in Philly, Philly, <laughs> Philly, it was super diverse. It was about 98% white. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in Taiwan. But it's funny though, because I remember at Penn, I took a sociology course and this blonde white girl was like, I want to make friends with other races, but when I walk into the cafeteria, like all of the black people sit over there and they don't like, it's so unwelcoming and all the Asian people sit over here. And I was like, I raised my hand, I was like, hey lady, I grew up in Taiwan. I went to the international school and guess what, uh, what the, all the white people did? They all sat in the same corner at the same table and it was, <laughs> it was just how people are. Mm. Uh, yeah, what, yeah. What was that transition like to go from suburbs of Philly in high school, it, like getting adjusted to that for a year and a half and then going to Penn? Oh, it was awesome. Like, cause for me, like. That year and a half was kind of rough. I left all my friends yeah. and then my parents were like starting up this restaurant and there were no Chinese people. <laughs> and so to go to Penn and meet all these people and weird people like Tommy and it was like, I was like, oh, cool, cool. This is like a much more comfortable mm. experience. So it felt like getting back into mm. more comfortable environment. So you and Tommy met, y'all went to, y'all both went to UPenn. Y'all met what? Freshman? When'd you become friends? On on the gimbal basketball court, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> freshman year, yeah. Was it gimbal? No, we we were probably maybe Hutch, yeah, yeah. We were probably playing Hutchinson, yeah. yeah so was it like game recognized game, or you were like, oh, that guy is so sorry, but he tries really hard. Like, what was the? <laughs> yeah, so you were there for the origin story of yeah. the rational confidence threes. Wow, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. I, I think you arrived at Penn with the confidence. This. confidence. You, yeah. I heard you guys talk about him as Nick Young, and that I, I never. No, no. Nick no, Van Exel. No, no. I was I was Nick Van Exel. No, 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 Nick Young. Nick Young. He was definitely Nick Young. Aspirational versus reality. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. In his head, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm Nick Van Exel. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, we. Uh, I always thought he, it was funny because the whole time, he was always my L.A. friend. Like, he would just talk about, oh, back in L.A. this, back in L.A. that. And 
and he would always talk about his friends like they were like Crips and Bloods. He was like, yo, like, <laughs> oh my, my God. boy, you know, he's I like, you it. don't do Disneyland because, you know, Disneyland <laughs> too happy for him. <laughs> and I was like, Tommy, you're from Orange County, bro. Like, it. it's not that hard. And I he's like, no, 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 Orange so County. Yeah. And so he always had that like sort of dangerous liaison or dangerous mm. mind, not dangerous liaison. <laughs> yeah, dangerous <laughs> <mind>. <laughs> different movie. Oh, dang. That's, that's a, a different story. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a different story. But, um, yeah, no, so, but, but we played ball together and, you know, guys in college is like oh you ball i ball yeah <laughs> we're, we're best friends man we were constantly in the gym like yeah. as soon as class was over we were like running over to the gym yeah we spent like every it was every evening we we're in mm. the gym yeah it was not good for the grades no it was not but, good for the grades but this was so this is pre-internet days before maybe people actually knew what orange county was so tommy what elements were you just like yo you seen that tupac video that's how i grew up yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, he saw an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. were you like he was like rebrand? I'm yeah, a rebrand yeah, Tommy right. Chang. He definitely rebranded himself in the this was the 90s again, yep, right? right? Like in the height of Biggie, Tupac, yep. all that stuff. You know so, what? The the reference point really is a better luck tomorrow. It was, when I was in high school, that yeah. was when the incident actually ha happened, happened. Right? Sonny Hill. So Tommy was nowhere kids. near it, but he, right, you right, know, right, he right. was a. But all these Asian cats thought they were yeah hardcore har yeah, hardcore yeah. gangster. But it was the it was when that was Stuart Tay got murdered. Yeah. It was that whole time. So then, when you were in Philly, though, now I, I'd imagine back then there wasn't a ton of Southern California Asians there. Maybe I'm wrong, but no, there were a lot actually. Penn had a lot of oh really, yeah, uh, Asian cats from. So no so one called you out on your budget. but but yeah but you felt but secure was, enough. I guess that's why he hung around all his East Coast. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, What's up? He didn't know I any had of no them. idea. I thought <laughs> my, myself as a gangster. Apparently, other people do. That's, he's looking at acting all his like, yeah. no idea. Yeah, he's like, like no, he just I walked was... into places doing this, and he was like, yeah, well, that's right. what's the got, He got a fake tattoo across his chest, <laughs> Thug Life, yeah. right? Well, back in the day, I don't know if you guys uh, understood this, like the Mickey Mouse hats, literally, you just talked about Disneyland, but the Korean gangsters would wear these Mickey Mouse hats, and they would represent different things. Yeah, I'm, I'm not joking. Where, in Orange County? It was a, yeah, it was an Orange the, County. These are the kind uh, of unverifiable stories that we're told yeah, yeah, in yeah. college. Impossible to verify, right? <laughs> yeah. But it was a Korean gangs game thing. They're wearing Mickey Mouse hats? Yeah. But this was before or after they went to tutoring. <laughs> <laughs> it was no, at no, Kumon. No, no. Yeah, yeah, it was at Kumon. Always, like, yeah. That's right. You always have to go tutoring. Yo, which Kumon about? you went to? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Kumon said you Yo, you sit over there. You sit over there, dog. I'm over here. But I think that speaks, it's kind of, the Asian American experience is so weird, right? There's pseudo fobs like me, and then like all of us are so relatively recent. Right. So we're all trying to figure out, like, it's just like trying on different clothes and different seasons of your life. Like, wait, what fits better? And there's no real, for our generation, there was no prior, right. you know, role model of, oh, that's Chinese. Like, it was either the Cantonese chi Chinatowns, and I didn't relate to any of that. And that was the sort of 70s Bruce Lee kind of thing. And you're like, that's not me. And also we got made fun of for being Bruce Lee. So like all of us are trying to find an identity and what it meant. And so some went fake gangster or real gangster to try that on. And yeah. We've talked to a few people who have shared their experiences of having to hide at different points. Like I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. So it was very much like anything that had to do with Asian, I was trying to hide. Yeah. And I saw recently, I think Pew came out with a study about one in five Asian Americans have felt like they've actively tried to hide their aspects of their identity at different points in their life. Like your stint in suburban Philadelphia was short, but did you ever feel like that in, in, in this context of having to 
or, or wanting to hide aspects so, of your Asian identity? I, I feel like when I moved here, maybe because I was already a junior in high school, that I was like, yo, I'm from Taiwan. This yeah. is who I am, and you guys don't get me. And I was uh, kind of like more okay. like that. But I feel like throughout my career, though, there's for sure been moments where I'm like, oh, because I studied computer science, I came out an engineer, but then like I went down a business track. Yeah. But still, people would just see me and they assume like, oh, he's a solutions architect. I'd walk into a room and they would assume I'm not the business guy, right? Yeah. And so I found a lot of times like I was sort of more trying to create who I am against what people assume I am instead of just being who I am, right? Like, yeah, for sure. There are parts of me. I was good at math. I was good at engineering and that's just who I am. But I was suppressing some of that because I didn't want to live into a stereotype. But it's just like something, if you're a white dude, you never have to think twice about it. You're just like, I am, yeah. I'm Jim. I get yeah. to be Jim and all of who <laughs> yeah, Jim yeah. is, right? Like, but I, uh, Mike, I'm trying to be like, yo, I, I want them to think of Mike as this and not that. When they see me, they're the, and so it's just like these layers of complexity and like overthinking our identity. And maybe that's because I'm the adapting to new environments. So you're thinking about who you are or who they're perceiving you to be. But yeah, it's just like a burden that yeah. a lot of people don't have to navigate with. So for somebody who's older, who comes to the country, how long does it take for them to actually recognize like, oh shit, these people are actually being mean. They're not curious at all. Right. Like, because I feel like I've met people who are more recent immigrants and they're just like, oh, it's just because I'm different or I'm new. There's a wanting to extend the benefit of the doubt sort of orientation. Right. But then at some point, at what, how long does it have to be for you to just be like, oh no, this is actually fucked well, we up. We have a friend and colleague whose dad is a restaurateur too, right? right? He plays out that stereotype. I mean, True. he loves it. I'm, sh I'm sure people are goofing on him, but he, yeah. he embraces it. Created Chinese an empire. people are the most entrepreneurial people. They're like, they don't care. It's like, oh, you want me to put on like a triangle hat so you, I can sell you more food? <laughs> Done. Like, no problem. <laughs> I don't long care. As long as I get paid. Just, just as long as the credit yeah. card goes through, I don't care. But I do think, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's an interesting thing i feel like i as i've gotten older also i've tried to separate ignorance from racism mm. right like i remember the thing that really drove it home for me was one time we were like on a family vacation i got a son and two daughters we're in palm springs and we're playing in the swimming pool and this little white lady comes up and goes like oh are those two little girls twins and i was like Yo, that's really racist, right? Like, I was like, oh, no, no, no. They're sisters. They're supposed to look alike. <laughs> they, they have a shared gene pool. They, they yeah. should look alike. How dare you? Oh, those are actually my, both my kids. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and I was like, oh, okay. I got to like scale back some of this. And there's some element of when you're around something, obviously you can tell the nuances from it, right? The reason they say it's like really hard for artists to draw hands it's not because it's hard to draw, but because we stare at our hands so much that we know mm. the contours of it. So we know what looks real and what doesn't, right? And you see these marine biologists and they're like, oh, there's Flipper and there's like yeah. Bobby the the dolphin because the, 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 the fin looks like this. And you're right. like, I don't know. They all look like dolphins to me, right? Mm. And there's like a certain element, I'm sure in Oklahoma, like they don't encounter a lot of Asians. So they don't, they're like, wow, they all look alike. When I watched Game of Thrones, I couldn't tell any of the characters apart, right? Like I'm like, mm -hmm. there's another bearded white guy. Like, I don't know who he is. Like. <laughs> Um, but in that show, there's legit too many people. Yeah, yeah, there are, <laughs> there are too many people, but like that, the, so I begin to kind of separate a little bit more. Okay. That's ignorance because they haven't been in proximity to different cultures and then stuff that's just like out of hatred or out of things that they are doing that actively prevent opportunity from people. Mm -hmm. So in the, cause in the work that you're doing, I'm sure you have to sift that out a lot. Like, does it, 
is it more on the side of ignorance or more on the side of reason or like it, it just kind of varies depending on the, the setting? When the work I'm doing with, with technology, I think one of the things that has gone wrong is with these really open social networks like Twitter and whatnot, you build this environment that is kind of like road rage, right? And I don't need to tell you like in this room to be nice to everybody. We're all friends. We're homies. But if somebody cuts you off on the 405, you might lose your stuff, right? right. And you're not anonymous. I know who you are. I can see your face. I can see your license plate. And I think online, because it's a sufficiently big space, we, even like reasonable people, when they're in that kind of context, yeah. act irrationally. And yeah. so that brings out some of the worst elements of racism and toxicity yeah. in the conversation. It's just not conducive. So it is a combination of both, like also the ignorance, like, oh, I don't know how to talk about these people that I don't interact with much. And then the sort of fake courage that you get yeah. online. I mean, it's like, like toxic sports fandom, right? Like yeah. what a lot of fans yell at athletes. It's mm -hmm. just like, man, if you were on the street and you saw, you know, you saw a dude 6'6", 275, you're not yelling nothing, right? Yeah. Like you quietly going to keep walking and it's just, but yeah, there's like, and even if you knew right? them, like, yeah, you might yell at LeBron, like, yo, make a shot, you idiot. Yeah. And if you're, if suddenly he walks into this room, I'm not going like, yo, man, you should have hit that shot. You That's right. Me. Yeah. You know? I mean, I might. Though. I might say something yeah, <laughs> to Harden. I might. I might. What was the famous story? I think you were sharing it the other day. The guy, the guy who was like yelling, screaming. Um, oh, yeah. To Isaiah Thomas, like a Philly fan. Like, yeah. he's screaming at Isaiah Thomas. And Isaiah Thomas went up to him and was like, hey, what's up, man? He said, oh, my bad, man. I was just, <laughs> if you miss two free throws, we get free smoothies. <laughs> I love no, that story. There was, but no, there was like a similar, I mean, there, I feel like there's so many of these now, but there's also like that, that, that video footage of Russell Westbrook walking to the locker room and like some guy was yelling at him and he stopped turning around like, yo, what up? And he was like, oh, no, nah, no, nah, I'm good. I'm just, yeah, I'm just, a, I'm just a and, fan. And you're right. like, who is that guy? Oh, he's a partner at a law firm right, in right, Center right. City, Philadelphia. And you're like, but. When you're, that's how we are, right? Like yeah. in certain environments. And one of the problems is the, the context that we show up on the internet too often encourage that type or create environments for that kind of behavior instead of the real world interactions that we have. And, and I feel like that's something I'm very passionate about figuring out. Like, how do we make internet environments better that we can have these meaningful conversations instead of just like dunking on each other? Mm. Well, tell us a little bit about this project because this is such a cool thing. Yeah. So I just, a couple months ago started this company called cooler part uh, in a lot of ways in reaction to this right like realizing okay on, on the one end there are these private networks like chat apps like snapchat where i was at before or whatsapp or telegram and these are great for one-on-one -on -one communications and then we have these wide open places which have all these problems that i was just talking about and in the middle this community the sense of community we've lost right like i don't need to tell you to not act like a moron in the, your local YMCA parking lot or your local church parking lot. You just know, right? Because it's in a context you care about. And so as I thought about it some more, I realized actually what we're doing here, podcasts are a really one part of the internet where this is happening in a good way, right? Like you get to listen to someone for an hour, talk for an hour or two hours or whatever. And so you really get to deeply engage. It's not just like 140 character dunk on someone. It's like a real conversation. You get to really know somebody. And people who tune in feel like they're part of this community. And yet this is without, these communities are being built without any assistance from the player. And so our feeling is if you can build a player that brings in these 
these rich conversations and sen- help people feel a sense mm-hmm. of community and belonging. We can really create parts of the internet that have meaningful conversation and help creators like you guys build these thriving communities. Mm. How do you see in us being able to engage our audience? Because I mean, we can engage ourselves here, but like we're struggling to figure out like how do we actually have more conversations with more people without having people show up in person coming out of a, a podcast episode? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is just bringing chat right into the listening experience, right? Like mm. I, every podcaster I talk to, it feels like when they post an episode, it's like throwing a, putting a message in a bottle and you're just throwing yep. it into the ocean yeah, and you right. see a dashboard and you get some numbers of like how many people listen, but you're like, I don't know who they are. We're throwing it into what. the yellow sea, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> into the Yangtze River. Um, but uh, it, it's just like such a cold thing. And like, unless you're like the biggest, biggest podcast, right? the number of people who listen compared to the number of people who reach out to you on Twitter and like, yo, I just listened to the last episode that was with Frank and that was dope when he talked about that. Like you probably get not much of that, if any at all. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, because there's so much friction, right? Like, I got to listen to the, I'm listening to your podcast on my car. I got to go home and then I got to remember back when I get to my desktop, like, oh yeah, I should hit them on t-. like the number of people by then who do it are going to be That's so right. slim. So if we can build it right into the listening experience, feels it begins building that two-way dialogue in a way that like now probably feels like oh we record this episode in this room and it's really cool and then all of a sudden it goes out in the internet and i get some numbers back yeah it's funny when you say that the people that know we do this and the people that we're close to they mention it actually all the time right even if there's nothing to talk about they're almost like compelled to like just like put it out in the air yeah and the way that community gets built is like so fascinating because you build this lingo and like these inside jokes, but that comes from like the ongoing things, right? Like, oh, if we made a joke here and somebody picks that up and like starts riffing off of it, yeah, like that kind of magic is what in real life like leads to a lot of the interesting communities that we build. That's true. I hadn't thought about, yeah, like the, all the, the biggest podcasts and ones that turn into shows and radio shows, like it's, they have their own language that like a lot of times comes from. The fan interaction. Yeah. Is a little bit of name drop, but I, I was previously running this accelerator program at Snapchat and we would just always bring guest speakers and we'd have our dozen or so founders and then we'd have a guest speaker come. And one year Mark Cuban came and was talking to everybody. And there was one guy who was like super cocky and he was like talking about his idea. And like halfway through Mark Cuban was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he just froze him in his tracks. Right. Yeah. And then for the rest of the night, anytime he thought there was a dumb idea, he's like, what do we say? And he's like, no. And that just became like an inside joke, but that yeah. didn't carry forward. But in a podcast, that becomes right. like, oh, all of a sudden there's this catchphrase or there's this thing. And that's shared language, shared jokes, shared. Those yeah. are the things oh. that make us human, right? Like, Albert, you got to make a, a, a drop that we edit in with Tommy going, <laughs> she, she. Yeah. That's going to be the drop. That's the ultimate yeah. validation. When yeah, you yeah, get yeah. a she, that means you, you made a good point. You put that on a t-shirt, right. all of a sudden people you are made like, a good and, point. and you know, but that's the thing, right? Let's say you didn't edit that, edit that out and you let him like drop all his mm. she. Like, and that becomes an ongoing joke. And then suddenly somebody's wearing t- Even if your community is small, all of a sudden we want to identify with these communities that we belong in, right? Group, yeah. So all of a sudden I see you in that t-shirt 
Like all of them is like, yo, you yo, listen to this? I'm gonna make a t-shirt weird... for Airlock. I'm gonna your face on it. She, <laughs> yeah. wow. It goes all the way around. Remember, the back. That's right. Oh, oh, literally, I have to remain so, if you see from the back, all you see are the eyes. All you see are the eyes. Diagonal like a sash. Remain employable. That is a rule of thumb. More employable. You're gonna be employable by cooler places. Yeah, man. And that's the beauty. Like I still feel like as much as like the joke is everybody's got a podcast. Yeah. But like. I still feel like it's undervalued because of that depth of interaction. You can't get to that deep nuanced part of like, we just had this whole conversation about identity and like different ways that we come into it. And the orange County experience being different from the Taiwan experience being for yeah. Korea. like, there's no tweet that captures the nuance right. of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to go to that and then springboard off of that, like, is just a thing that mm. doesn't really, the internet doesn't afford today and I feel like is so essential to our human thriving, whether how we advance thought, how we advance culture, how we advance. And so yeah. that's the thing we're excited about is just feeling like Conan O'Brien always talks about. It. He's like, I know when somebody approaches me, whether they know me from the TV show mm-hmm. or know me from the, the podcast. podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cause on the TV show, they're like, yo, celebrity, let me take a selfie. Yeah. And people who know me from the podcast, he says like, they just approach, like they already know me. Cause right. like I'm like in their friend, ear right. for an hour or two hours a week. And so there's a depth of relationship that no other medium affords. Yeah. So one thing you, you said, and I, I want to make sure we, we spend a little bit of time on this. So when you're talking about your story, you talked about your dad being successful, killing it, but getting passed up. And we've talked about the, the particular challenge around leadership, who's a leader, who looks like a leader, sounds like a leader, acts like a leader. And so I'm curious, like how you, and this is a question to everybody here, because I know this has come up for everybody, but starting with you, Mike, how have you navigated that challenge and that question throughout the course of your career? Yeah, no, it's, it's something only in more in the recent years I've begun to realize in tech, it's famous. There's the bamboo ceiling, right? Like, you know, 60% 60% of a lot of tech companies are Asian workforce. And then when you get to leadership, it's like under 10% leadership. So why is that? Why? Yeah. Why? Um, the Asian workhorse. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. And they're like, wow, Johnny's a great worker, but I don't know if he's management material, just like the way people used to talk about my dad. And I realized like that we have a very, in America, especially in corporate America, we have a very narrow definition of leader. And it's predominantly informed, I think, by pop culture, right? Like in pop culture stories, the stories that are compelling are going to be the sports story or the general story, the, the war story, because those have very heightened stakes and they have a very finite end to it. Hmm. And so that demands a certain type of leadership, a type of leadership that can like convince somebody to potentially sacrifice their lives in service of this greater cause. But building a company is very different than going to war. Going to war is like, yo, everybody march towards this thing against all of your self-interest. And maybe we'll, we'll have an outcome. And so that takes a certain type of leadership, but I think there's so many different types of leadership that can thrive, right? I think about my wife a lot of times. She would be terrified of public speaking. Doing this podcast, she would never do. But when you see her move through the world because of the way she cares for people, because people know the, the thought that she puts into people, if she asks somebody anything, they will do it 10,000%. Because they know she cares for them and she knows, and that's a different type of leadership that you wouldn't right. define as the Braveheart speech giving type person. And in Asian culture, for example, collectivism is a lot more valued than individual. Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, somebody who can bring the group together 
and move consensus forward is value, generally valued more than the person who's sort of running out in front. And so I always think like if you take someone like Jack Ma, who was the founder of Alibaba, who oh, built one of the most valuable companies in the world, if he had moved to the U.S., like he'd probably just be a middle like engineering, engineering manager yeah. at Facebook because it's like, well, you know, Jack, he, he's great, super smart guy, but I don't yeah. know if he's leadership material. Right. But because in Asia, he wasn't encumbered by the stereotypes of what a leader should be, he's able to thrive. And you think about Mother Teresa or all these other leaders that lead in different ways than just the sort of fire and brimstone. And we never value that. And I think if we begin to broaden our definition of what a leader could be, we'll see a lot more women, see a lot more diverse leadership in our ranks. I mean, have you personally had these sort of experiences where you feel like, hey, you're ready for that role, but you never got it? Yeah, it's happened. I mean, I, unfortunately, like so many times throughout my career, it's been, I, I can point to an, uh, at least a handful of them where it's been a tiebreaker and my manager sat me down and like, I know, you know, it could go either way, but we just feel like so-and-so could be. And in every single one of those, like since then, my career has gone far beyond what that person has. And it's like at the time, it just felt they, they just didn't perceive me. As, what was the descriptor that they use? You recall, like that person was more dot dot dot. Just, just a better fit, a better fit at this time brings a few some of the intangible, and it's just. I've had friends who talk to me like they're about to take their company public, and their board goes, "I don't know, maybe we should look for a professional CEO," mm. you know. And he's like, "Yo, I I just built this I, hundreds I built of millions it, yeah. of dollar uh, company, and I got it to here, and you're I, I get what you I know what you're saying. You're yeah. saying I'm not white." Yeah, that that term fit. Yes, such a dangerous term. Yeah, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, or more of a classic leader. Like I, you know, I, even I have made this mistake of like, oh, I don't know if I see that person giving the brave heart speech. Yeah, right, and that as a litmus test for what a leader is. Right. You talked about this. I think this is a podcast you did with Jason. We're like talking about how it was kind of eye opening for me that the the court the traditional corporate culture in the U.S. is based off of military leaders, right, coming back. And setting that tone and that being accepted as the norm or the standard for excellence and that West Point mentality, like obviously in, in, in a culture like football, it, make, it makes a lot of sense, but it's just kind of assumed across lots of industries. And Yeah, because it's what we consume in pop culture. Because again, nobody wants to watch a movie of somebody leading a steady company over a hundred year period That's of right. time. That's like the most boring ass movie or like just me leading my family over like the... Seven percent growth every year for thirty yeah. years. <laughs> the what you're saying about flawed prototypes of leadership, but there's folks right now. There's folks in our network who are either in that seat or very close to getting that seat. And the struggle is, I know I'm not that. I don't fit that. But to get that seat, do I have to compromise or do I have to not totally ignore who I am? but do I have to make some concessions? And yeah. I feel like mm -hmm. that for me is, yeah, of course, the story of I never changed who I am. I just did things my own way. I never compromised and I made it. Like that's a great story, but that is not the story that the majority of Asians who are in either currently in leadership or proximal to leadership, that's not always an option that they have. And so I'm curious, right. how have you navigated that tension? And what advice would you give to folks right now who are literally like, fuck, like, that I deserve that seat, but I got to play ball a little bit if I want that seat, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, 
you see this across all underrepresented people, like women in leadership, the women who tend to be leaders are still like the ball busting, like, oh, that, <laughs> that girl could take anybody down and she will just like cut anybody off. And it's a great question. I feel like it's two pronged in the near term. We just have to fight however we can to get those spaces and carve out. And then once you're there, kind of begin like moving it. It's really hard when it comes to your kids because it's like, I know if I tell you to just be who you are, you might not make it to where you want right. to go. And that's like the hardest thing to, to, to say to a kid. Right. And so it's like, oh, be who you are, but also kind of play the game is kind be of who thing. Like, don't be too much. Who but you again, are. for Asian Americans, we've only, for the most part, only been here a couple of like yeah. one or two generations. And so I think it's a fight that kind of is a push and pull that has to be both. Like for the people who are able to, it's like, yo, go mold into whatever you have to do to go grab that spot. And then, you know, also continue to try to figure out ways to carve out space for people who don't fit the mold. Yeah. Like, I'm curious for Tommy and Brian, like y'all have both grappled with it yourselves and you've also actively supported others who have grappled with those questions. So curious what y'all take. I would say find a way to put your, uh, get your feet in the door. I think it's critical. I think yeah. we've got to figure out how we get more leaders into that number one role. And I then will caution people that don't continue not pretending to be someone you are not mm. when you're in that role because it's it's just too obvious. You've got to lead authentically. Like leading in an unauthentic way or pretending you're someone who you're not, it won't last very long and people aren't going to follow you. Mm. So the, the, the interview... The meeting in the boardroom that gets you that position. Sometimes you got to play the game. Right. You understand that it's a command performance because they want to see what you will be like when you're in that seat. Yeah. But when you're leading people, I think it's different. Yeah. I think it's, you're not always leading people through a command performance. You're leading people in other ways of interaction. So. I don't want to call it code switching either because it's not. Yeah. It's more like context. So, it, I mean, it is being strategic, right? Like everybody, no matter what, like when you're trying to go for that top seat, everybody's making some sort of compromise sure. in some way and performing in other ways. And so I, I think that's smart advice is like, go get it. And once you get there, then you're in a position of power that you can broaden um, that definition. But I'm yeah, you about, are broadening. Like when you are that number one position, just by occupying it. By occupying, you then get the opportunity to redefine what leadership is, and people will be able to watch you move in spaces in a different way. And I think that's really critical. We think about Asian Americans who have held prominent positions in our space. They've broken stereotypes. And we one of our previous guests, yeah. right? She broke stereotypes of what an Asian American leader should be. Yeah. So. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a tough one for me because I've always been a better coach of other people than a coach of myself. Like the self-talk has always been mm. the challenge for me. And like, I think we've referenced this on this podcast, but I don't know that we've dived into it a lot. <clears throat> but professionally, I have spent the majority, spent, I've spent the most majority of my career trying to assimilate, trying to make other people happy and meet other people's expectations and not standing on who I am, what I believe and what I think I deserve. That has not been 
how I've nav- how I've approached the space, and that's been like a reckoning that I've come to in the last couple of years. Um, and accompanying that is I have internalized the messages that I've heard from other people about me not being this caliber or this 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 that or the other, and like missing out on opportunities of being passed by. And I've internalized that as, oh, I'm not good enough. And so this is something that when I say it's tough, like it's something that I've wrestled with a lot um, in recent years because it's a thing that I know conceptually not to be true because I coach other people about not doing that and not not buying into that. But it's because it's much easier for me to see that in other people Mm -hmm. than it is for me. And that's the self-work, you know what I mean? And so... um, when I got into education, a lot of the conversation, especially in the bro network is around like aspiring to be a superintendent, aspire to be the number one. And if you don't, why not? And at the time I didn't have this understanding, but the more I got into my career, the more I realized, and I, not the more I got into my career, the more I did identity development, the more I realized, oh, I don't see myself as number one because these are all the things that other people have told me. And like, I'm not comfortable in that. There's a lot to that. But I think um, there is this self-narrative and being able to be aware of what you've internalized mm. um, and what is actually true. That can get, can get caught. When you internalized, when you said you internalized this sort of belief that you can't be the number one, did you have the desire at that time to be the number one? No, I've never had that. This is the spotlight thing, right? Like, I don't like being the spotlight. I think I'm similar to your wife. We've had a lot of conversations about starting this podcast where the idea of being recorded and being on a mic and all that kind of stuff, being in the spotlight is something that is wholly uncomfortable. Brian's like, can I use somebody else's name instead of mine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All can we get over. Kanye's AI voice <laughs> to right. do this? That's right. Like, can we post Jimmy O. Yang's picture instead of mine? But it's something that's very uncomfortable. And I also recognize some of this is me is working through this kind of baggage for myself. So, yeah, so I think the wanting it, the not wanting it, I don't know, even to this day, how much of that is internalized versus how much of it is like that. Well, I, I was wondering, that, like, you're, yeah. I mean, first of all, that's incredible introspection and self-awareness. Um, but I think it also goes down to, again, our perception of leadership is merely the outward appearance of leadership. Because at the end of the day, what is leadership? It's just being able to get a bunch of people to do that's right. a certain thing. Right. That's right. And yelling at someone is one way to get people to do it. But again, another way is like, dude, you're the smartest person in a room. And I don't know, my buddy Todd from college, like, he's the smartest dude. He might not be the best, like, Braveheart speech giving dude, but I know whatever he's working on, he's going to figure out how to get us on higher ground because he's the smartest dude in any room. Yeah. And that's a different kind of leadership. And then the type of people who care for people, right? Like, I am Mama Bear or Papa Bear, and whoever's under my guidance, I am going to bring them along and take care of them. That's right. And that's another type of leadership that gets people to follow. And, and, and when we peel it back to first principles, there's so many different ways that people can impact a group of people. And But we think about leader, again, as just like, you know, can the general give the speech? Yeah. That resonates. But one thing I think that Brian, like that to that introspection, I think the question that you often bring up is like, but some of that requires awareness and clarity, right? I understand this about leadership generally, but I also understand about myself. This is how I lead. 
But to Brian's point, sometimes when you share your experiences, it's almost like not even just messages. If sometimes you talk like you're haunted, you're haunted by messages of past mm. people. Mm. And it's like, so if you're don't even know what you want, I thought I wanted this, but everybody told me I was wrong. And so I started wanting this and I was like, nah, I don't like this. I'm actually not sure anymore. Or I thought I was good or I wanted to aspire to be this type of leader, but everybody told me that's not the, so like, so I think once you know, yeah, like there is a, like there's a path to figure out how to get it. But then again, for a lot of Asian people, there's like, oh, like how do I actually get to a place of I know when every step I've been told this, that, and when I've spent my entire life feeling like I don't have permission to do that, right? Like that's a different hurdle. Yeah. When you have to get past the hurdle of like, I'm allowed to think about this. I'm allowed to try to claim this for myself. That's a different kind of, um, obstacle to navigate than just do I want this or not? Yeah. And this part is sort of the negative parts of general, especially Asian American culture is this culture of like external achievement versus like internal happiness and like yeah. fulfillment. Right. Right. It's like, oftentimes you're thinking like, well, I don't know, this is what everybody else tells me should be the goal. And you're like, I don't know, man, like this is what I really find happiness in yeah. and I find deep fulfillment in. And I've met so many entrepreneurs who have made it to like, when you look from the outside, like the, the pinnacle heights, of what yeah. you want. And they're like, yo, I got into the best school. I went, I worked at the best companies and then I started my own company and I took it public and I made all the money in the world. And just now I'm looking up and all of a sudden go like, is this it? Mm. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I did everything everybody told me should yeah. be the thing that leads to happiness right. and I'm not happy. And also like, now what? Like, I don't have any more. Uh, I had this sort of parental or cultural or public perception of what I should achieve. And I have no compass. I've never developed that compass of finding internal satisfaction and reward and happiness. Versus like when we talked to, we had a, we had a guest on Chris Wong, who's a composer. And he like knew as a teenager, yeah, I want to look, music. even if I go broke, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, yeah. I got to try this, yep. try music. Like there's a, there's a large range of the spectrum between who you're talking about in between him. And like, if you're somewhere in the middle of there, how do you get yourself to feel that permission to like, well, I, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. And maybe this is what I'm going to be happy doing. What in all that is uniquely Asian American and what is not though? Cause I've heard yeah. similar sentiments. Yeah. So I think, the experience itself is not necessarily uniquely Asian, Green, right? Yeah, like, because yeah. different other communities of color have experienced this. Short people, like, right? There's like a lot of different non-Asian immigrants. Like, yeah, you, there's a lot of different ways you can cut it. So, I think for me, it's like not the experience itself that's unique, but it's the messages that Asian people have been told consistently over time. Like, that's the unique part of it, right? So, I'm sure in a different conversation in a different room other communities of color who are having a very similar conversation, but they're grappling with slightly different messages around why they were told they were not going to be effective leaders or not, they were not qualified or a good fit to be the number one chair, right? But also what's unique is there's still, not that there's enough in any sector, but there's still a huge void and gap and examples and models of Asians in leadership. So, you know, I think Frank said it, we're often relying on stories of other people to kind of interpret and translate, make it work yeah. for us, even when it doesn't, right? So it's like, oh, like, 
I aspire like this leader. Like me with Barkley. I was like, yo, Charles Barkley's my guy. Exactly. Right. right. He's not Asian. (laughs) Yeah. Prior to Jeremy Lin, like we all latched onto other people's stories, even when it didn't fit at all. But we're just like, there's something about this that resonates with me. You really kind of extracting like very specific things. It's the closest I can find. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what Frank said exactly is we develop a psychological hack. Right. That we come up with where we identify and not uh, for people who don't look anything like us. Right. So, and I think he, he actually quoted uh, Pablo Torre yeah. on that one. Tommy, like a lot of people use you as an example for superintendencies in public schools, right? Like there's not enough, but there have been other women. There have been other black superintendents, right? But it's like in big city public school systems, it's still you and Michelle, right? And so at some point, there's just like... The, the database isn't growing in the same way, right? And even in there is a complicated thing. Like, I think Jeremy faced this, and anybody who's the first or one of the first is like, you want to be like, yo, I just want to be the best superintendent. I want everybody to say, I want to be the next Tommy Chang. Right. But you carry the burden of carrying the torch, right? Like, right. Jeremy Lin wrestled You become with, a symbol is what he said, right? Am I like a, the Asian-American hooper, or That's I just right. want to be a dope hooper? So that does it for this episode of the Miss Education Podcast. Thank you to our guest, Mike Sue. Thank you all for listening. Till next time.